0: Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at Chime.com goals24. Banking services is debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NIA, or Stride Bank NI, Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply.
1: I'm Jonathan Capehart and this is Cape Up. All eyes are on Georgia, not only because President-elect Joe Biden stands poised to be the first Democrat to win the state since 1992, but also because both of its U.S. Senate seats are up for grabs. In one of those contests, Senator Kelly Leffler, the Republican incumbent appointed to the seat by the governor earlier this year, faced 20 challengers on the special general election day ballot. None of the candidates was expected to meet the 50 percent threshold to avoid a runoff in January, but Leffler is not leading the pack. That distinction goes to Reverend Raphael Warnock. He was born and raised in Georgia. He's one of 11 children. He is the senior pastor of the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. And this is his first run for public office. Find out why Warnock is running, why he believes the rigors of being a minister have prepared him for the campaign trail, and why he believes he will prevail right now. Reverend Raphael Warnock, welcome to the podcast.
2: Great to be here with you, Jonathan.
1: We're talking because your Senate race, where how many people you were running against there in Georgia in your race?
2: I don't know if I can even count them. <laughs> There were 21 people in my race, and the names were listed alphabetically. My last name is Warnock. Okay. And so, <laughs> as was the case when I was in elementary school, when the teacher said it's time to go to lunch or recess, I was the kid next to the last kid in line, and so it was in this in this race but I finished first.
1: That's significant. I didn't know that the names were listed in alphabetical order, and your last name begins with a W. The person who got the second most votes, her name starts with an L. You got 32.9, at least as of right now, last I looked. 32.9% of the vote. What was it, a million six votes already?
2: And she's the incumbent who spent millions of dollars in this race. That's right.
1: Right. And you got almost a million more votes than the person who came in third, which is the congressman who is trying to knock out the incumbent. So let's start at the beginning. Why did you think that now is the time to run for office and run for U.S. Senate?
2: Well, my whole life has been about service. I'm a pastor, I serve at Ebenezer Baptist Church, but I've been engaged in these fights from that pulpit for years. I've been fighting for health care, access, and affordability for years, standing up in acts of civil disobedience, demanding that we expand Medicaid in this state. I've been fighting for voting rights. I've worked alongside my friend, Stacey Abrams. We've registered through the New Georgia Project, which I chaired. 400,000 new voters in the state. I've been standing up for the dignity of workers and their right to share in some of the prosperity that they've created. And I think my passion for these issues emerges from my life story. As someone who grew up in public housing down in Savannah, Georgia, one of 12 children, I'm number 11, and the first college graduate in my family. So my success as a result of hard work, but also Pell Grants, low-interest student loans, good public policy i know the difference that good public policy makes and that's why i'm running for the u.s senate
1: and so in your campaign running around the state that hasn't voted for a democrat for president since 92 and president-elect joe biden is on the cusp of perhaps winning the state of georgia talk about one why president-elect biden's message seemed to resonate in Georgia and what impact that has had on your race. And also talk about what you've heard on the campaign trail. Cause I can imagine you went all around the state. You didn't just stay in Atlanta <laughs> campaigning.
2: No, that's a good point. I've been moving all across the state and you know, that that's important, Jonathan, because there is this narrative in Georgia politics that there is Atlanta and then the rest of the state. And so I'm from Savannah, you know, Southeast part of the state. But I've been on a bus moving across the state. I've dropped by small towns like America's Georgia and Cuthbert, Georgia, and down in Randolph County. And the people are surprised when I show up. And I'm surprised that they're surprised. But they say to me that they have not seen a candidate show up in their town, which is interesting to me because I'm running to represent the whole state, rural and urban, the north and the south. And I'm getting to see firsthand the concerns that people are having. And what are people concerned about? They're concerned about health care. They're concerned about the fact that they want to make sure that they don't lose the coverage that they have, that coverage is affordable. We've had eight hospitals to close in this state, largely because we refused to expand Medicaid. It's the unnecessary war that the Republican Party has waged against President Obama, who's no longer in office. And the people are the casualties in that war. Their hospitals are closing in these rural areas, devastating rural health care, and also taking away jobs. And so I think the people voted the other night when they voted for Joe Biden. And when David Perdue failed to get a majority of uh, his voters, even though he's the incumbent. And I finished ahead of Kelly Loeffler, even though she's the incumbent. The people are voting for unity over division and chaos. They're voting for healthcare. They're voting for a livable wage and the ability to retire uh, with dignity. They're voting for the best in the human uh, condition and the American spirit.
1: When you're out on the campaign trail though, in those parts of Georgia that perhaps aren't hospitable, to a Democratic candidate. What kind of response are you getting? What are you hearing from those voters?
2: I think people appreciate the fact that you're willing to talk to them. And that's my orientation. It's not a strategic political decision. Quite frankly, part of what running gives me an opportunity to do is to do what I would normally want to do anyway, and spend time with talking to people who don't see the world exactly the way I do. One of the things that disappointed me about the fact that we're living through this deadly and tragic pandemic, is that I had hoped earlier in the campaign to get across this state and drop into some of these Wednesday night Bible studies. I'm a pastor Mm -hmm. after all. And there are people who don't share my politics, but we read from the same book. And there must be some values. There must be some common ground. There must be a place where we can talk about the things that we actually agree on. And I intend to do that in the weeks ahead.
1: What's the most surprising thing you've learned on the campaign trail? I mean, is this the first time you've run for
2: public office?
1: That's correct. So then the most surprising thing you've learned?
2: I'm surprised that people who run for high federal office, who want to be the United States Senator, often fly past these rural areas and don't often spend time talking to them. Now, that was not the case with Stacey Abrams. She went to every county in the state. But often, I think there are huge swaths of our state that feel left out by Washington. And they wonder who's representing them, who's thinking about them. And, you know, one of the things I've learned from being a pastor is that no matter how much time you spend in seminary, and I have two master's degrees and a PhD degree, it's the people who teach you how to be a good pastor, who really teach you how to be a good preacher especially in our tradition, because you've got call and response, amen, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and if you're off, they say, Lord, help. <laughs> so, if <you> listen, <laughs> so, so if you listen carefully, you'll become a better preacher. And I think that that applies to leadership in general. The way to be a good senator is to stay in contact with the citizens. And so this is not a campaign, you know, strategy for me. I intend to to be the United States Senator from the great state of Georgia. You know, my blood, bones, and sinews are tied up in this state for all of its complicated history. I am a proud Georgian. I'm from Savannah, Georgia. My dad was born in Burke County and spent his early years in Screven County before his family moved to Savannah. My mama's from Waycross, Georgia. You know where that is? It's Waycross, Georgia. She spent her years as a teenager growing up in the 1950s, you know, picking tobacco and cotton. And she poured into me, she and my father, the value of a work ethic, of working hard, the idea that you're not defined by what you have. And I I believe that. And it's informed everything I've tried to do.
1: I want to stick with your parents for a moment because you brought it up, and it's also in your introductory video, about the fact that your mom pick tobacco and cotton. And you know, that's one of the things I love to say to people is to say to them, you know, I'm the first generation, me and my cousins are the first generation in our family to not have to pick cotton. It's sort of reminding people that, you know, our history isn't all that far in the past. And so for those who are listening who might not be able to really appreciate and comprehend what it means for you to be able to say that my mom picked cotton and tobacco as a teenager and you're saying that as not only the senior pastor at you know one of the most prestigious black churches in the country but as a candidate for US Senate
2: that's right it's one of the most amazing and powerful things about this magnificent journey i'm on my mother is 82 years old my father's mm-hmm. now deceased and as a Black teenager growing up in the 1950s. She went to Center High School, but she spent her summers picking somebody else's tobacco and somebody else's cotton. And the other day, she got to help pick her youngest son to be the next United States Senator from the great state of Georgia. That says something amazing about the resilience of the human spirit, about the ways in which Black people have never given up on this country. We've been patriots, we've believed in America, we've hoped against hope. And it also said something about the promise of America. It's slipping away from too many people right now, which is why I'm running. But the fact that this kid who grew up, one of 12 children, number 11, first college graduate, is a formidable candidate for the United States Senate, and indeed will be the next United States Senator, speaks volumes about this grand and noble and complicated experiment called America. I believe in it. I'm going to stand up for it and try to be a good senator for all of Georgia.
1: These last four years with President Trump in the White House have been tough and rough for a whole host of reasons. For me, it's been tough because the country I thought I knew, with all its complications, was sort of turned upside down. A lot of things that people try to ignore, particularly when it comes to systemic racism, our country's problematic and not so glorious past now in our faces. And I'm wondering from your perspective, but also I'm thinking about your mom, your 82 year old mom, my mom's going to be 78 in a couple of weeks and the things that they have seen, do those things play into your decision to jump into the political arena to try to right wrongs. Bring me inside just what the last four years have meant for you. And did they play a role in pushing you from the pulpit into politics?
2: Yeah, I think our democracy goes through these cycles. It expands and it contracts. And sometimes when you have a history making expansion, the election of the first Black president, there are demagogues who whip up fear and who appeal to the ugly underside of our complicated history. And the democracy contracts, and we've been going through one painful set of contractions over the last four years. And so I thought it was incumbent upon me in this moment. Uh, given all the work that I've tried to do for years, fighting for voting rights, criminal justice reform, the dignity of work, I thought it was incumbent upon me to do what I could do in this moment and to stand up and not to shrink from the responsibility to run for the Senate. The truth is I've been asked a few times to run for the Senate based on the work that I've been doing by ordinary folks who just see me doing this work and they're like, Rev, when are you going to run? And that was never a foregone conclusion for me. The issue was, you know, for me, for me, voting rights is ministry because voting is your voice and your voice is the sanctity of your humanity. It's giving. So for me, voting rights and mobilizing voters, that's ministry. But in this moment, as people were calling on me to run here in this state, at one point I asked myself, who am I to say no? Given what my mom went through, Given, you know, the stories that my dad used to tell me, my father was much older than my mom, and he was a World War II veteran. And he told us the story of being fully dressed in his soldier's uniform and getting on a city bus and being asked to give his seat up to a young white teenager. There he was, donned in his uniform, prepared to defend the world, make the world safe for democracy, to stand up for human rights and human dignity, and in his uniform, asked to give up his seat. So when I think about that, the trajectory of our great quest to make this a more perfect union, if they endured that and didn't shrink, never became bitter, never gave up on the country, who am I to say no when citizens all across this state we're saying to me, we think you'd make a great senator. And so I'm deeply honored. And I look forward to the conversation about what moral leadership looks like in this moment.
1: You know, speaking of moral leadership, after the killing of George Floyd, Americans of all stripes took to the streets of America to protest racial injustice, systemic racism. Between that, the loss of C.T. Vivian, the laws of Congressman John Lewis. This has been a very weighty time in this. What impact do you think all of that has had, not only on your race, but on national politics?
2: I think it's been a huge wake-up call about how much work we still have yet to do. I have had folks walk up to me, white sisters and brothers who, you know, are very well-meaning and have said to me, Raphael or Reverend, I will admit to you, I thought we were further along and they were just shocked by what they saw on that video and into the work that we've got to do. Now, those who say that there's been no progress, they're wrong. I mean, I live in Atlanta. Don't you dare say to Andrew Young that the world is no different than than the world was that he grew up in. It's an insult to him, it's untrue and it flies in the face of reality. That said, there's work to be done. I've had citizens white and black, but I'm thinking especially of white sisters and brothers who, you know, just want to be in the right place and on the right side of history, saying, I will admit, I, I thought we were further along. And the good news is that in the wake of that, we saw a multiracial, generational coalition of conscience. Pour into American streets, pushing us toward that more perfect union. And that's been the history of this grand story called America. And you sometimes take one step forward and two steps back, but you have to keep on marching. We don't have a choice. And so I see that on the racial front, I see it on the economic front. I'm reminded as the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, now running for the Senate, that Dr. King literally died standing up for workers. He went to Memphis because he heard the clarion call of workers who were fighting for their dignity. We saw the emergence of those iconic signs. I am a man. I mean, nothing more basic than you can, that you can say about yourself than I am a man. It's kind of like saying Black Lives Matter or Sojourner Truth in the 19th century saying, ain't I a woman? Oppressed mm-hmm. and marginalized people have to have movements to affirm about themselves what ought to be basic and understood. And so when there's pushback by the likes, say of Kelly Leffler, who has tried to silence the black women on her own team, it shows a profound lack of sensitivity, understanding, and blindness to your own privilege in the world. And it's quite unfortunate. But Martin Luther King Jr died standing up for workers. And what I'm reminded of in this moment as I'm running for the U.S. Senate, the pastor of that church, is that the minimum wage in 1968 had more purchasing power than the minimum wage in 2020. And so the gap between the haves and the have-nots, the contradictions that we've got to answer to in this moment, they deal with the issue of race, but also class. And I'm deeply honored to have the opportunity to stand up for ordinary people. You can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade or at least grab an extra
0: latte after getting a Chime checking account with features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, no minimum balance requirements, and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals24. That's chime.com goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp
2: Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A., members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits
0: apply.
1: You mentioned a moment ago, Senator Leffler and the Black women on her team, you're talking about the WNBA players of the Atlanta Dream. She's a co-owner. Let's leapfrog. Let's say you do indeed win the runoff on January 5th. You become Senator Reverend Warnock. What kind of senator do you want to be?
2: I want to be a senator who keeps his ear to the ground, who's listening to the people. I want to stay connected to the people. I think that we've had professional politicians so long that unfortunately it's become difficult for us to imagine a different path. But I think we ought to ask ourselves, well, how well has that served us? To have people whose goal is politics. Politics is, for me, a tool. The goal is humanity, the goal is beloved community. And so our politicians are so focused on the next election that they're not thinking enough about the next generation. So I intend to be someone who's in Washington, but never drunken by the wine of Washington, always focused on the people that they might center me and keep me grounded, so that whatever the public policy question is, whether it's healthcare, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's voting rights, whether it's access to public education, whatever the issue is, that I always find myself grounded in community and seeing it in a moral frame. And I think if I do that, I'll discern what's the right thing to do in that moment.
1: What do you say to the Georgia voter who likes what you're saying, but says, but you know, if he's elected, if Reverend Warnock is elected, that's one more vote for Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader from New York. Will you be, to that person's mind, independent of the leadership in the Democratic Party?
2: Oh, there's no question that I will. I'm clear that I'm here to represent the people of Georgia. It's Kelly Leffler who has said over and over again that she's 100 percent Trump. Now, regardless of whether you like Trump or not, even if you voted for him, I want the people of Georgia to think about that, that you here you have a sitting United States senator who says they're 100 percent with the president. I think that's a bizarre statement to make no matter who the president is. You're there to represent the people of Georgia. Heck, what do you mean you're 100 percent? Every now and then, I have an argument with myself about what's the right position. She's 100 percent Trump. I'm 100 percent the people of Georgia. And in the places where that requires that I stand up and take a position other than the majority of my party, absolutely, I'll take that position.
1: The conversation, at least right now, with President-elect Biden, Vice President-elect Harris, is how are they going to be able to govern, especially if democrats don't take back the majority let's say that you are in the senate how do you think president biden will be able to get his agenda through because even though he's president of the united states the democratic majority has shrunk in the house and the senate will be almost evenly split is compromise even possible
2: we have to make sure that perfect is not the enemy of the good. And politics is the art of the possible. I do think that we need to think you know, in bold and courageous terms about what we can do because we're an American people. That's what we do. And so this is a moment that, that does require us to think big, I think. But you've got to remain in conversation with the other side. And I think you've got to keep in conversation with the people you're trying to represent one of the things that concerns me in this moment is our infrastructure i mean we should take this moment in which we're having to respond to this pandemic anyway we're going to need some kind of stimulus package why wouldn't we take this moment really to invest in america i think our broken streets and roads and bridges that are falling down our reflection of the brokenness in our politics. And while we're having to respond to the crisis, I'd like to see us get creative and invest in roads, high-speed rail, the huge swaths in this state and other states when you drive through rural areas where there's barely any broadband. I've been talking to farmers who understand that you can't even farm as efficiently as you would If you had broadband, you got to be connected to the internet to be a good farmer nowadays. And we need to build out our green energy grid so that we are then in a place not only to stimulate the economy short term, but to position the American economy long term to be the leader in the world. We can't act as if it's inevitable that we're going to be the leader. We've got to position ourselves constantly to lead. And, you know, everybody's talking about how the country needs to be brought together, and I agree with that. I think one way to bring people together is to give them a big project. And we ought to get serious about Project America. Literally, you know, it's like a family that's been arguing, you know, and fighting about this. Maybe if you fix the fence (laughs) and uh, renovate the house and get engaged in a project while you're doing that, maybe we can have a conversation with one another about who we are to one
1: another. You mentioned her earlier in our conversation, Stacey Abrams. She ran for governor, came up a little bit short, although the person she was running against was the referee and then a whole bunch of stuff in that. But what lessons did you learn from her race for governor that's helped you in your current campaign?
2: It was a good reminder of the importance of just standing in the authenticity of your voice. I admire that she didn't pretend to be anybody other than who she was. And that's what I intend to do. And some may say that she came up short, but yeah, she ran against somebody who was both her opponent and the umpire. He was clearly calling balls and strikes. And with his thumbs firmly on the scale, he barely squeaked by her less than 55,000 votes, 1.4%. And so I intend to have an authentic conversation with the people of Georgia about my record, about my values, and about the covenant I think that we have with one another as a people.
1: So you're in the runoff, and the runoff is because no one of the, what, 20-something people who are running hit 50%, but you got the most. People came out in droves to the ballot box. What are you doing to ensure that folks who got you into the runoff come back? on January 5th and elect you Senator in January. Is it possible to keep that enthusiasm going for another couple months? We
2: must, we have no other choice. And so I intend to make my case all across the state over the next few weeks and remind people that, look, even though I've won this phase of the game, it doesn't matter if you don't win the runoff. I guess people remember folks who go to the World Series or to the Super Bowl, but the point is to win. And when I say win, I don't mean personally. I, I mean, I intend to take home a win for the people of Georgia. A vote for me is a vote for health care. It's a vote for voting rights. It's a vote for the dignity of work. And I need to remind the people of Georgia that it's really their names that are on the ballot. And I intend to stand up for them and their families.
1: Last question to you, and that's this. What makes you a Georgian?
2: Oh, I mean, that's who I am. And, and In uh, my heart of hearts, I was born in this state, raised in this state, down in Savannah, Georgia. You know, I remember growing up in the Caton Homes housing projects. And a lot of memories, but I was telling folks the other day as I was at a rally in Caton Homes, I wanted to look those kids in the eye and tell them that I'm from where you're from and that you can aspire to great things. I remember that we used to go skiing my friends and I. Now I lived in Savannah, there was no snow. We would go to the furniture store nearby, about a block from my house. And after they took the appliances out of the furniture store there was always these cardboard boxes. We used to take those cardboard boxes, go up to the top of that hill next to I-16 and slide down that hill and you couldn't tell us that we weren't skiing. We had the sense that the world was bigger than the neighborhood we were from. And my village gave me the ability to dream and to think that my outcome wasn't limited to my parents' income. I believed that, I took it with me to Morehouse College where I didn't have enough money for the first semester. So I was born in this state, raised in this state, educated in this state. I went away for a few years and earned my graduate degree training, pastor for a few years in Baltimore. And when the opportunity came, I came back to Georgia and I'd be deeply honored to continue to represent Georgia values in the United States Senate.
1: I'm sorry, Reverend. I lied to a Reverend. This is the last question. And that is, you know, President-elect Biden ran on a message of fighting for the soul of America. He has talked consistently about being a president for all of America. And I'm just wondering, is the country ready for something like that? Especially since President Trump, even though he lost, still got millions more votes than he did in 2016. Does the nation want to be brought together? Can it be brought together?
2: Here's what Americans all across this country have right there was this gnawing sense that there's something wrong, that there's something amiss, that there's a disconnect between the political conversation and what's going on in the lives of ordinary people, which is why I think some folks decided four years ago to blow it all up. What they got right is that there is something fundamentally amiss. The answer to that was the issue. And so I think that we have to continue to speak to and take seriously the angst in the American soul. The president-elect is rightly talking about redeeming the soul of America, but I think there's an angst in people's hearts, a a sense of vulnerability that no matter how hard they work, there's a disconnect between what they're putting in and what they're getting out. And a lot of people are self-medicating. You see that with the crisis around opioids across rural Georgia and and suburbs all across this country. And I think that as we think about that, for example, it is an opportunity for us to see each other's humanity because in the 1980s and 90s, um, our response to people self-medicating against 244 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow, and all of the broken promises was to have a war on drugs, which ended up being really a war on black and brown communities in Baltimore and in Atlanta and New York and all across the country. And now I think is an opportunity. For for the children, for the parents of children who have died from the opioid crisis and the parents and uncles and aunts of children who were casualties either by death or over policing to the crack epidemic to stand together to see each other's humanity and build a beloved community.
1: Reverend Raphael Warnock, senior pastor of the Ebenezer Baptist Church, candidate for U.S. Senate in the great state of Georgia, who's in a runoff on January 5th. Thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you. Good to be with you, brother.
1: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate and review us. I'm Jonathan K-Part of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at k
0: you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com goals 24. That's chime.com goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC, spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.